0: Chapter fifty eight of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter fifty eight. For there can live no hatred in thine eye, therefore in that I cannot know thy change. In many's looks the false heart's history is writ in moods and frowns and wrinkles strange. But heaven, in thy creation, did decree that in thy face sweet love should ever dwell. Whate'er thy thoughts or thy heart's workings be, thy looks should nothing thence but sweetness tell. Shakespeare's Sonnet At the time when Mr. Vincy uttered that presentiment about Rosamond, she herself had never had the idea that she should be driven to make the sort of appeal which he foresaw. She had not yet had any anxiety about ways and means, although her domestic life had been expensive as well as eventful. Her baby had been born prematurely, and all the embroidered robes and caps had to be laid by in darkness. This misfortune was attributed entirely to her having persisted in going out on horseback one day, when her husband had desired her not to do so. But it must not be supposed that she had shown temper on the occasion, or rudely told him that she would do as she liked. What led her particularly to desire horse exercise was a visit from Captain Lydgate, the baronet's third son, who, I am sorry to say, was detested by Arturtius of that name as a vapid fop, parting his hair from brow to nape in a despicable fashion, not followed by Tertius himself, and showing an ignorant security that he knew the proper thing to say on every topic. Lydgate inwardly cursed his own folly that he had drawn down this visit by consenting to go to his uncle's on the wedding tour, and he made himself rather disagreeable to Rosamond by saying so in private. For to Rosamond this visit was a source of unprecedented but gracefully concealed exultation. She was so intensely conscious of having a cousin who was a baronet's son staying in the house, that she imagined the knowledge of what was implied by his presence to be diffused through all other minds. And when she introduced Captain Lydgate to her guests, she had a placid sense that his rank penetrated them as if it had been an odour. The satisfaction was enough for the time to melt away some disappointment in the conditions of marriage with a medical man, even of good birth. It seemed now that her marriage was visibly as well as ideally floating her above the Middlemarch level, and the future looked bright, with letters and visits to and from Collingham, and vague advancements in consequence for Tertius, especially as probably at the captain's suggestion his married sister, Mrs. Mengen, had come with her maid and stayed two nights on her way from town. Hence it was clearly worth while for Rosamond to take pains with her music and the careful selection of her lace. As to Captain Lydgate himself, his low brow, his aquiline nose bent on one side, and his rather heavy utterance might have been disadvantageous in any young gentleman who had not a military bearing and moustache to give him what is doted on by some flower-like blonde heads as style. He had, moreover, that sort of high-breeding, which consists in being free from the petty solicitudes of middle-class gentility, and he was a great critic of feminine charms. Rosamond delighted in his admiration now even more than she had done at Quallingham, and he found it easy to spend several hours of the day in flirting with her. The visit altogether was one of the pleasantest larks he had ever had, not the less so, perhaps, because he suspected that his queer cousin Tertius wished him away that Lydgate, who would rather, hyperbolically speaking, have died than have failed in polite hospitality, suppressed his dislike, and only pretended generally not to hear what the gallant officer said, consigning the task of answering him to Rosamond. For he was not at all a jealous husband, and preferred leaving a feather-headed young gentleman alone with his wife to bearing him company. "'I wish you would talk more to the captain at dinner, Tertius,' said Rosamond, one evening, when the important guest was gone to Loamford to see some brother officers stationed there. "'You really look so absent sometimes. You seem to be seeing through his head into something behind it, instead of looking at him.' "'My dear Rosie, you don't expect me to talk much to such a conceited ass as that, I hope,' said Lydgate, brusquely. "'If he got his head broken, I might look at it with interest. Not before.' "'I cannot conceive why you should speak of your cousin so contemptuously,' said Rosamond, her fingers moving at her work while she spoke with a mild gravity which had a touch of disdain in it. "'Ask Ladislaw if he doesn't think your captain the greatest bore he ever met with. Ladislaw has almost forsaken the house since he came.' Rosamond thought she knew perfectly well why Mr. Ladislaw disliked the captain. He was jealous, and she liked his being jealous.' "'It is impossible to say what will suit eccentric persons,' she answered. "'But in my opinion, Captain Lydgate is a thorough gentleman, "'and I think you ought not, out of respect to Sir Godwin, to treat him with neglect.' "'No, dear, but we have had dinners for him, and he comes and goes out as he likes. "'He doesn't want me.' "'Still, when he is in the room, you might show him more attention. "'He may not be a phoenix of cleverness, in your sense. "'His profession is different.' "'but it will be all the better for you to talk a little on his subjects. "'I think his conversation is quite agreeable, "'and he is anything but an unprincipled man.' "'The fact is you would wish me to be a little more like him.' "'Rosie,' said Lydgate, in a sort of resigned murmur, "'with a smile which was not exactly tender and certainly not merry.' Rosamond was silent and did not smile again, "'but the lovely curves of her face looked good-tempered enough without smiling.' Those words of Lydgate's were like a sad milestone, marking how far he had travelled from his old dreamland, in which Rosamond Vincy appeared to be that perfect piece of womanhood who would reverence her husband's mind after the fashion of an accomplished mermaid, using her comb and looking-glass, and singing her song for the relaxation of his adored wisdom alone. He had begun to distinguish between that imagined adoration and the attraction towards a man's talent, because it gives him prestige. And is like an order in his buttonhole, or an honourable before his name. It might have been supposed that Rosamond had travelled too, since she had found the pointless conversation of Mr. Ned Plymdale perfectly wearisome. But to most mortals there is a stupidity which is unendurable, and a stupidity which is altogether acceptable. Else, indeed, what would become of social bonds? Captain Lydgate's stupidity was delicately scented, carrying itself with style, talked with a good accent, and was closely related to Sir Godwin. Rosamond found it quite agreeable, and caught many of its phrases. Therefore, since Rosamond, as we know, was fond of horseback, there were plenty of reasons why she should be tempted to resume her riding, when Captain Lydgate, who had ordered his man with two horses to follow him and put up at the Green Dragon, begged her to go out on the grey, which he warranted to be gentle and trained to carry a lady. Indeed, he bought it for his sister, and was taking it to Collingham. Rosamond went out the first time without telling her husband, and came back before his return. But the ride had been so thorough a success, and she declared herself so much the better in consequence, that he was informed of it with full reliance on his consent that she should go riding again. On the contrary, Lydgate was more than hurt. He was utterly confounded that she had risked herself on a strange horse without referring the matter to his wish. After the first almost thundering exclamations of astonishment, which sufficiently warned Rosamond of what was coming, he was silent for some moments. "'However, you have come back safely,' he said at last, in a decisive tone. "'You will not go out again, Rosie. That is understood. If it were the quietest, most familiar horse in the world,' "'There would always be the chance of accident, "'and you know very well that I wished you to give up riding the Rhone on that account.' "'But there is the chance of accident indoors, Tertius.' "'My darling, don't talk nonsense,' said Lydgate, in an imploring tone. "'Surely I am the person to judge for you. "'I think it is enough that I say you are not to go again.' "'Rosamond was arranging her hair before dinner, "'and the reflection of her head in the glass showed no change in its loveliness.' "'except a little turning aside of the long neck. "'Lydgate had been moving about with his hands in his pockets, "'and now paused near her, as if he awaited some reassurance. "'I wish you would fasten up my plaits, dear,' said Rosamond, "'letting her arms fall with a little sigh, "'so as to make her husband ashamed of standing there like a brute. "'Lydgate had often fastened the flat plaits before, "'being among the deftest of men with his large, finely formed fingers.' He swept up the soft festoons of plaits, and fastened in the tall comb. To such uses do men come. And what could he do then but kiss the exquisite nape which was shone in all its delicate curves? But when we do what we have done before, it is often with a difference. Lydgate was still angry, and had not forgotten his point. "'I shall tell the captain that he ought to have known better than offer you his horse,' he said, as he moved away. "'I beg you will not do anything of the kind, Tertius,' said Rosamond, looking at him with something more marked than usual in her speech. "'It will be treating me as if I were a child. Promise that you will leave the subject to me.' There did seem to be some truth in her objection. Lydgate said, "'Very well, with a surly obedience,' and thus the discussion ended with his promising Rosamond, and not with her promising him." In fact, she had been determined not to promise. Rosamond had that victorious obstinacy which never wastes its energy in impetuous resistance. What she liked to do was to her the right thing, and all her cleverness was directed to getting the means of doing it. She meant to go out riding again on the grey, and she did go on the next opportunity of her husband's absence, not intending that he should know until it was late enough not to signify to her. The temptation was certainly great, she was very fond of the exercise, and of the gratification of riding on a fine horse, with Captain Lydgate, Sir Godwin's son, on another fine horse by her side, and of being met in this position by any one but her husband, was something as good as her dreams before marriage. Moreover, she was riveting the connection with the family at Quallingham, which must be a wise thing to do. But the gentle grey, unprepared for the crash of a tree that was being felled on the edge of Halsall Wood took fright, and caused a worse fright to Rosamond, leading finally to the loss of her baby. Lydgate could not show his anger towards her, but he was rather bearish to the captain, whose visit naturally soon came to an end. In all future conversations on the subject, Rosamond was mildly certain that the ride had made no difference, and that if she had stayed at home, the same symptoms would have come on and would have ended in the same way because she had felt something like them before. Lydgate could only say, "'Poor, poor darling!' But he secretly wondered over the terrible tenacity of this mild creature. There was gathering within him an amazed sense of his powerlessness over Rosamond. His superior knowledge and mental force, instead of being as he had imagined a shrine to consult on all occasions, was simply set aside on every practical question. He had regarded Rosamond's cleverness as precisely of the receptive kind which became a woman. He was now beginning to find out what the cleverness was, what was the shape into which it had run as into a close network aloof and independent. No one quicker than Rosamond to see causes and effects which lay within the track of her own tastes and interests. She had clearly seen Lydgate's pre-eminence in Middlemarch society and could go on imaginatively tracing still more agreeable social effects when his talent should have advanced him. But for her, his professional and scientific ambition had no other relation to these desirable effects than if they had been the fortunate discovery of an ill-smelling oil. And, that oil apart, with which she had nothing to do, of course she believed in her own opinion more than she did in his.' Lydgate was astounded to find in numberless trifling matters, as well as in this last serious case of the riding, that affection did not make her compliant. He had no doubt that the affection was there, and had no presentiment that he had done anything to repel it. For his own part, he said to himself that he loved her as tenderly as ever, and could make up his mind to her negations. But, well— Lydgate Gate was much worried and conscious of new elements in his life as noxious to him as an inlet of mud to a creature that has been used to breathe and bathe and dart after its illuminated prey in the clearest of waters. Rosamond was soon looking lovelier than ever at her work-table, enjoying drives in her father's Phaeton, and thinking it likely that she might be invited to Quallingham. She knew that she was a much more exquisite ornament to the dining-room there than any daughter of the family, and in reflecting that the gentlemen were aware of that, did not perhaps sufficiently consider whether the ladies would be eager to see themselves surpassed. Lydgate, relieved from anxiety about her, relapsed into what she inwardly called his moodiness, a name which to her covered his thoughtful preoccupation with other subjects than herself as well as that uneasy look of the brow, and distaste for all ordinary things, as if they were mixed with bitter herbs, which really made a sort of weathered glass to his vexation and foreboding. These latter states of mind had one cause amongst others, which he had generously but mistakenly avoided mentioning to Rosamond, lest it should affect her health and spirits. Between him and her, indeed, there was that total missing of each other's mental track, which is too evidently possible even between persons who are continually thinking of each other. To Lydgate, it seemed that he had been spending month after month in sacrificing more than half of his best intent and best power to his tenderness for Rosamond. Bearing her little claims and interruptions without impatience, and, above all, bearing without betrayal of bitterness to look through less and less of interfering illusion at the blank, unreflecting surface, her mind presented to his ardour for the more impersonal ends of his profession and his scientific study, an ardour which he had fancied that the ideal wife must somehow worship as sublime, though not in the least knowing why. But his endurance was mingled with a self-discontent, which, if we know how to be candid, we shall confess to make more than half our bitterness under grievances, wife or husband included it always remains true that if we had been greater, circumstance would have been less strong against us. Lydgate was aware that his concessions to Rosamond were often little more than the lapse of slackening resolution, the creeping paralysis apt to seize an enthusiasm which is out of adjustment to a constant portion of our lives. And on Lydgate's enthusiasm there was constantly pressing not a simple weight of sorrow— but the biting presence of a petty, degrading care, such as casts the blight of irony over all higher effort. This was the care which he had hitherto abstained from mentioning to Rosamond, and he believed with some wonder that it had never entered her mind, though certainly no difficulty could be less mysterious. It was an inference with a conspicuous handle to it, and had been easily drawn by indifferent observers, that Lydgate was in debt and he could not succeed in keeping out of his mind for long together that he was every day getting deeper into that swamp, which tempts men towards it with such a pretty covering of flowers and verdure. It is wonderful how soon a man gets up to his chin there, in a condition in which, spite of himself, he is forced to think chiefly of release, though he had a scheme of the universe in his soul. Eighty months ago Lydgate was poor, but had never known the eager want of small sums, and felt rather a burning contempt for any one who descended a step in order to gain them. He was now experiencing something worse than a simple deficit. He was assailed by the vulgar, hateful trials of a man who has bought and used a great many things which might have been done without, and which he is unable to pay for, though the demand for payment has become pressing." How this came about may be easily seen without much arithmetic or knowledge of prices. When a man, in setting up a house and preparing for marriage, finds that his furniture and other initial expenses come to between four and five hundred pounds more than he has capital to pay for, when at the end of a year it appears that his household expenses, horses and etc., amount to nearly a thousand, while the proceeds of the practice reckoned from the old books to be worth eight hundred per annum have sunk like a summer pond and make hardly five hundred, chiefly in unpaid entries. The plain inference is that, whether he minds it or not, he is in debt. Those were less expensive times than our own, and provincial life was comparatively modest. But the ease with which a medical man who had lately bought a practice, who thought that he was obliged to keep two horses, whose table was supplied without stint, and who paid an insurance on his life and a high rent for house and garden, might find his expenses doubling his receipts, can be conceived by any one who does not think these details beneath his consideration. Rosamond, accustomed from her to an extravagant household, thought that good housekeeping consisted simply in ordering the best of everything. Nothing else answered, and Lydgate supposed that, if things were done at all, they must be done properly. He did not see how they were to live otherwise. If each head of household expenditure had been mentioned to him beforehand, he would probably have observed that he could hardly come to much, and if anyone had suggested a saving on a particular article, for example, the substitution of cheap fish for deer, it would have appeared to him simply a pennywise mean notion. Rosamond, even without such an occasion as Captain Lydgate's visit, was fond of giving invitations, and Lydgate, though he often thought the guests tiresome, did not interfere. This sociability seemed a necessary part of professional prudence, and the entertainment must be suitable. It is true, Lydgate was constantly visiting the homes of the poor, and adjusting his prescriptions of diet to their small means. But, dear me, has it not by this time ceased to be remarkable? Is it not rather that we expect in men that they should have numerous strands of experience lying side by side, and never compare them with each other? Expenditure! like ugliness and errors, becomes a totally new thing when we attach our own personality to it, and measure it by that wide difference which is manifest in our own sensations between ourselves and others. Lydgate believed himself to be careless about his dress, and he despised a man who calculated the effect of his costume. It seemed to him only a matter of course that he had abundance of fresh garments. Such things were naturally ordered in sheaves, it must be remembered, that he had never hitherto felt the cheque of importunate debt, and he walked by habit, not by self-criticism. But the cheque had come. Its novelty made it the more irritating. He was amazed, disgusted, that conditions so foreign to all his purposes, so hatefully disconnected with the objects he cared to occupy himself with, should have lain in ambush, and clutched him when he was unaware and there was not only the actual debt, there was the certainty that in his present position he must go on deepening it. Two furnishing tradesmen at Brassing, whose bills had been incurred before his marriage, and whom uncalculated current expenses had ever since prevented him from paying, had repeatedly sent him unpleasant letters which had forced themselves on his attention. This could hardly have been more galling to any disposition than to Lydgate's, with his intense pride, his dislike of asking a favour or being under an ab- obligation to any one he had scorned even to form conjectures about Mr. Vince's intentions on money matters, and nothing but extremity could have induced him to apply to his father-in-law, even he had not been made aware in his various indirect ways since his marriage that Mr. Vince's own affairs were not flourishing, and the expectation of help from him would be resented. Some men easily trust in the readiness of friends. It had never been the former part of his life occurred to Lydgate that he should need to do so. He had never thought what borrowing would be to him, but now that the idea had entered his mind, he felt that he would rather incur any other hardship in the meantime. He had no money or prospects of money, and his practice was not getting more lucrative. No wonder that Lydgate had been unable to suppress all signs of inward trouble during the last few months and now that Rosamond was gaining brilliant health, he meditated, taking her entirely into confidence on his difficulties. New conversance with tradesmen's bills had forced his reasoning into a new channel of comparison. He had begun to consider from a new point of view what was necessary and unnecessary in goods ordered, and to see that there must be some change of habits. How could such a change be made without Rosamond's concurrence? The immediate occasion of opening the disagreeable fact to her, was forced upon him. Having no money, and having privately sought advice as to what security could possibly be given by a man in his position, Lydgate had offered the one good security in his power to the less peremptory creditor, who was a silversmith and jeweller, and who consented to take on himself the upholsterer's credit also, accepting interest for a given term. The security necessary was a bill of sale on the furniture of his house, which might make a creditor easy for a reasonable time about a debt amounting to less than four hundred pounds, and the silversmith, Mr. Dober, was willing to reduce it by taking back a portion of the plate, and in any other article which was as good as new. Any other article was a phrase dedicately implying jewellery, and more particularly some purple amethysts, costing £30, which Lydgate had brought as a bridal present. Opinions may be divided as to his wisdom in making this present. Some may think that it was a graceful attention to be expected from a man like Lydgate, and that the fault of any troublesome consequences lay in the pinched narrowness of provincial life at that time, which offered no conveniences for professional people whose fortune was not proportioned to their taste. Also, indicates ridiculous fastidiousness about asking his friends for money. However, it had seemed a question of no moment to him on that fine morning, when he went to give a final order for plate. In the presence of other jewels enormously expensive, and as an addition in order of which the amount had not been exactly calculated, thirty pounds of ornaments so exquisitely suited to Rosamond's neck and arms could hardly appear excessive when there was no ready cash for it to exceed. But at this crisis, Lydgate's imagination could not help dwelling on the possibility of letting the amethysts take their place again among Mr. Dover's stock, though he shrank from the idea of proposing this to Rosamond. Having been roused to discern consequences which he had never been in the habit of tracing, he was preparing to act on this discernment with some of the rigour—by no means all—that he would have applied in pursuing experiment— He was nerving himself to this rigour as he rode from Brassing, and meditated on the representations he must make to Rosamond. It was evening when he got home. He was intensely miserable, this strong man of nine-and-twenty and and of many gifts. He was not saying angrily within himself that he had made a profound mistake, but the mistake was at work in him like a recognised chronic disease, mingling its uneasy importunities with every prospect and enfeebling every thought. As he went along the passage to the drawing-room, he heard the piano and singing. Of course, Ladislaw was there. It was some weeks since Will had parted from Dorothea, and he was still at the old post in Middlemarch. Lydgate had no objection in general to Ladislaw's coming, but just now he was annoyed that he could not find his hearth free. When he opened the door... The two singers went on towards the keynote, raising their eyes and looking at him indeed, but not regarding his entrance as an interruption. To a man galled with his harness as poor Lydgate was, it is not soothing to see two people warbling at him as he comes in with the sense that the painful day has still pains in store. His face, already paler than usual, took on a scowl as he walked across the room and flung himself into a chair. The singers, feeling themselves excused by the fact that they had only three bars to sing, now turned round. "'How are you, Lydgate?' said Will, coming forward to shake hands. Lydgate took his hand, but did not think it necessary to speak. "'Have you dined, Tertius? I expected you much earlier,' said Rosamond, who had already seen that her husband was in a horrible humour. She seated herself in her usual place as she spoke. "'I have dined. I should like some tea, please,' said Lydgate curtly, still scowling and looking markedly at his legs stretched out before him. Will was too quick to need more. "'I shall be off,' he said, reaching his hat. "'Tea is coming,' said Rosamond. "'Please don't go.' "'Yes, Lydgate is bored,' said Will, who had more comprehension of Lydgate than Rosamond had, and was not offended by his manner, easily imagining outdoor causes of annoyance. "'There is the more need for you to stay,' said Rosamond, playfully, and in her lightest accent. "'He will not speak to me all the evening.' "'Yes, Rosamond, I shall,' said Lydgate, in his strong baritone. "'I have some serious business to speak to you about.' No introduction of the business could have been less like that which Lydgate had intended, but her indifferent manner had been too provoking. "'There! You see,' said Will. "'I'm going to the meeting about the Mechanics Institute. "'Good-bye.' "'And he went quickly out of the room. "'Rosamond did not look at her husband, "'but presently rose and took her place before the tea-tray. "'She was thinking that she had never seen him so disagreeable. "'Lydgate turned his dark eyes on her "'and watched her as she delicately handled the tea-service "'with her taper fingers, "'and looked at the objects immediately before her "'with no curve in her face disturbed.' and yet with an ineffable protest in her air against all people with unpleasant manners. For the moment he lost the sense of his wound in a sudden speculation about this new form of feminine impassibility revealing itself in the sylph-like frame which he once interpreted as the sign of a ready intelligent sensitiveness. His mind glancing back to law while he looked at Rosalind, he said inwardly, would she kill me because I wearied her? And then, it is the way with all women. But this power of generalising, which gives men so much the superiority in mistake over the dumb animals, was immediately thwarted by Lydgate's memory of wandering impressions from the behaviour of another woman, from Dorothea's looks and tones of emotion about her husband when Lydgate began to attend him. From her passionate cry to be taught what would best comfort that man for whose sake it seemed as if she must quell every impulse in her except the yearnings of faithfulness and compassion. These revived impressions succeeded each other quickly and dreamily in Lydgate's mind while the tea was being brewed. He had shut his eyes in the last instant of reverie while he heard Dorothea saying, Advise me, think what I can do. He's been all his life labouring and looking forward. He minds about nothing else, and I mind about nothing else." That voice of deep-souled womanhood had remained within him as the enkindling conceptions of dead and sceptred genius had remained within him. Is there not a genius for feeling nobler which also reigns over human spirits and their conclusions? The tones were a music from which he was falling away. He had really fallen into a momentary doze, when Rosalind said in her silvery neutral way, "'Here is your tea, Tertius,' said he on the small table by his side, and then moved back to her place without looking at him. Lydgate was too hasty in attributing insensibility to her. After her own fashion, she was sensitive enough, and took lasting impressions. Her impression now was one of offence and repulsion— but then Rosamond had no scowls and had never raised her voice; she was quite sure that no one could justly find fault with her. Perhaps Lydgate and she had never felt so far off each other before, but there were strong reasons for not deferring his revelation, even if he had not already begun it by that abrupt announcement. Indeed, some of the angry desire to rouse her into more sensibility on his account which had prompted him to speak prematurely still mingled with his pain in the prospect of her pain. But he waited till the tray was gone, the candles were lit, and the evening quiet might be counted on. The interval had left time for repelled tenderness to return into the old course. He spoke kindly. Dear Rosie, lay down your work and come to sit by me, he said gently, pushing away the table and stretching out his arm to draw a chair near his own. Rosamond obeyed. As she came towards him in her drapery of transparent, faintly-tinted muslin, her slim yet round figure never looked more graceful. As she sat down by him and laid one hand on the elbow of his chair, at last looking at him and meeting his eyes, her delicate neck and cheek and purely cut lips never had more of that untarnished beauty which touches it in springtime and infancy and all sweet freshness. It touched Lydgate now and mingled the early moments of his love for her, with all the other memories which were stirred in this crisis of deep trouble. He laid his ample hand softly on hers, saying, "'Dear!' with the lingering utterance which affection gives to the word. Rosamond too, was still under the power of that same past, and her husband was still in part the Lydgate whose approval had stirred delight." She put his hair lightly away from his forehead, then laid her other hand on his, and was conscious of forgiving him. "'I am obliged to tell you what will hurt you, Rosie, but there are things which husband and wife must think of together. I dare say it has occurred to you already that I am short of money.' Lidgate paused. Rosamond turned her neck and looked at a vase on the mantelpiece. I was not able to pay for all the things we had to get before we were married, and there have been expenses since which I have been obliged to meet. The consequence is there is a large debt at Brassing, three hundred and eighty pounds, which has been pressing on me a good while, and in fact we are getting deeper every day, for people don't pay me the faster because others want the money. I took pains to keep it from me while you were not well, but now we must think together about it, and you must help me.' "'What can I do, Tertius?' said Rosamond, turning her eyes on him again. That little speech of four words, like so many others in all languages, is capable by varied vocal inflections, of expressing all states of mind, from helpless dimness to exhaustive argumentative perception.' From the completest self-devoting fellowship to the most neutral anoofness. Rosamond's thin utterance threw into the words, What can I do? as much neutrality as they could hold. They fell like a mortal chill on Lydgate's roused tenderness. He did not storm in indignation, he felt too sad a sinking of the heart. And when he spoke again, it was more on the tone of a man who forces himself to fulfil a task. "'It is necessary of you to know, because I have to give security for a time, and a man must come to make an inventory of the furniture.' Rosamond coloured deeply. "'Have you not asked Papa for money?' she said as soon as she could speak. "'No.' "'Then I must ask him,' she said, releasing her hands from Lydgate's, and rising, to stand at least two yards' distance from him. "'No, Rosie,' said Lydgate decisively, "'it is too late to do that. "'The inventory will be begun to-morrow. "'Remember, it is a mere security. "'It will make no difference. "'It is a temporary affair. "'I insist upon it that your father shall not know unless I choose to tell him,' added Lydgate, with a more peremptory emphasis." This certainly was unkind, but Rosamond had thrown him back on evil expectation as to what she would do in the way of quiet, steady disobedience. The unkindness seemed impardonable to her. She was not given to weeping, and disliked it. But now her chin and lips began to tremble, and the tears welled up. Perhaps it was not possible for Lydgate, under the double stress of outward material difficulty, and of his own proud resistance to humiliating consequences, to imagine fully what this sudden trial was to a young creature who had known nothing but indulgence, and whose dreams had all been of new indulgence, more exactly to her taste. But he did wish to spare her as much as he could, and her tears cut him to the heart. He could not speak again immediately, but Rosamond did not go on sobbing, She tried to conquer her agitation and wiped away her tears, continuing to look before her at the mantelpiece. "'Try not to grieve, darling,' said Lydgate, turning his eyes up towards her. That she had chosen to move away from him in this moment of her trouble made everything harder to say. But he must absolutely go on. "'We must brace ourselves to do what is necessary. It is I who have been in fault—' I ought to have seen that I could not afford to live in this way. But many things have told against me in my practice, and it really just now has ebbed to a low point. I may recover it, but in the meantime we must pull up, we must change our way of living. We shall weather it. When I have given this security I shall have time to look about me, and you are so clever that if you turn your mind to managing you will school me into carefulness.' I've been a thoughtless rascal about squaring prices, but come, dear, sit down and forgive me.' Lydgate was bowing his neck under the yoke like a creature who had talons, but who had reason, too, which often reduces us to meekness. When he had spoken the last words in an imploring tone, Rosamond returned to the chair by his side. His self-blame gave her some hope that he would tend to her opinion, and she said, "'Why can you not put off having the inventory made? "'You can send the men away to-morrow when they come.' "'I shall not send them away,' said Lydgate, the peremptoriness rising again. "'Was it of any use to explain?' "'If we left Middlemarch there would of course be a sale, and that would do as well.' "'But we are not going to leave Middlemarch.' "'I'm sure, Tertius, it would be much better to do so. Why can we not go to London, or near Durham, where your family is known?' "'We can go nowhere without money, Rosamond.' "'Your friends would not wish you to be without money, and surely these odious tradesmen must be made to understand that, and to wait, if you would make proper representations to them.' Uh, "'This is idle, Rosamond.' said Lydgate angrily. "'You must learn to take my judgment on questions you don't understand. "'I have made necessary arrangements, and they must be carried out. "'As to friends, I have no expectations whatever from them, "'and shall not ask them for anything.' "'Rosamond sat perfectly still. "'The thought in her mind was that if she had known how Lydgate would behave, "'she would never have married him. "'We have no time to waste now on unnecessary words, dear.' said Lydgate, trying to be gentle again. "'There are some details that I want to consider with you. Dover says he will take a good deal of the plate back again, and any of the jewellery we like. He really behaves very well.' "'Are we to go without spoons and forks, then?' said Rosamond, whose very lips seemed to get thinner with the thinness of her utterance. She was determined to make no further resistance or suggestions.' "'Oh, no, dear!' said Little Lydgate. "'But look here,' he continued, drawing a paper from his pocket and opening it. "'Here is Dover's account. "'See? I have marked a number of articles, "'which, if we return them, will reduce the amount by thirty pounds, and more. "'I have not marked any of the jewellery.' Lydgate had really felt this point of the jewellery very bitter to himself, but he had overcome the feeling by severe argument. He could not propose to Rosamond that she should return any particular present of his.' but he had told himself that he was bound to put Dover's offer before her, and her inward prompting might make the affair easy. "'It is useless for me to look, Tertius,' said Rosamond calmly. "'You will return what you please.' She would not turn her eyes on the paper, and Lydgate, flushing up to the roots of his hair, drew it back and let it fall on his knee. Meanwhile, Rosamond quietly went out of the room— leaving Lydgate helpless and wondering. Was she not coming back? It seemed that she had no more identified herself with him than if they had been creatures of different species and opposing interests. He tossed his head and thrust his hands deep into his pockets with a sort of vengeance. There was still science, there were still good objects to work for. He must give a tug still, all the stronger, because other satisfactions were going but the door opened and Rosamond re-entered. She carried the leather box containing the amethysts, and a tiny ornamental basket which contained other boxes. And laying them on the chair where she had been sitting, she said, with perfect propriety in her air, "'This is all the jewellery you ever gave me. You can return what you like of it, and of the plate also. You will not, of course, expect me to stay at home to-morrow. I shall get a papa's.' "'To many women,' the look Lydgate cast at her would have been more terrible than one of anger. It had in it a despairing acceptance of the distance she was placing between them. "'And when shall you come back again?' he said, with a bitter edge on his accent. "'Oh, in the evening. Of course I shall not mention the subject to Mama.' Rosamond was convinced that no woman could behave more inapproachably than she was behaving— and she went to sit down at her work-table. Lydgate sat meditating a minute or two, and the result was that he said, with some of the old emotion in his tone, "'Now we have been united, Rosie, "'you should not leave me to myself from the first trouble that has come.' "'Certainly not,' said Rosamond. "'I shall do everything it becomes me to do.' "'It is not right that the thing should be left to servants, or, "'or that I should have to speak to them about it.' and I shall be obliged to go out. I don't know how early. I understand your shrinking from the humiliation of these money affairs, but, my dear Rosamond, as a question of pride, which I feel just as much as you can, it is surely better to manage the thing ourselves, and let the servants see as little as of it as possible. And since you are my wife, there is no hindering your share in my disgraces, if there were disgraces.' Rosamond did not answer immediately, but at last she said, "'Very well. I will stay at home.' "'I shall not touch these jewels, Rosie. Take them away again. "'But I will write out a list of plates that we may return, "'and that can be packed up and sent at once.' "'The servants will know that,' said Rosamond, "'with the slightest touch of sarcasm. "'Well, we must meet some disagreeables as necessities. "'Where is the ink, I wonder?' said Lydgate, "'Rising and throwing the account on the larger table where he meant to write. Rosamond went to reach the inkstand, and after setting it on the table was going to turn away, when Lydgate, who was standing close by, put his arm round her, and drew her towards him, saying, "'Come, darling, let us make the best of things. It will only be for a time, I hope, that we shall have to be stingy and particular. Kiss me.' His native warm heartedness took a great deal of quenching, and it is a part of manliness for a husband to feel keenly the fact that an inexperienced girl has got into trouble by marrying him. She received his kiss and returned it faintly, and in this way an appearance of accord was recovered for the time. But Lydgate could not help looking forward with dread to the inevitable future discussions about expenditure and The necessity for a complete change in their way of living. End of chapter fifty eight. Recording by Simon Evers.